continue our journey through Mark, I want to remind you where we were. The beginning of chapter 11 highlights Jesus' arrival, much anticipated arrival into Jerusalem. And of course, Mark has been rapidly getting us to this event, the triumphant entry, as we call it, where Jesus fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies of Messiah riding in on a colt to the cheers and the singing of the crowds. Now, whether or not the throngs of people understood him to be the Messiah, we don't know, but it did not stop Jesus from allowing the songs of Hosanna. The palm branches being spread out, and he entered Jerusalem as the king and as the Messiah, even though many didn't understand. But I mentioned to you that not only did Jesus come in, was his purpose coming to Jerusalem, but specifically he was coming to Jerusalem headed to the temple, that center of worship that had been Israel's. Because it was there in the temple that he would most make his presence felt and, of course, face down the ruling class of religious leaders who would eventually have him arrested and, of course, crucified. And so he enters the temple quietly on that first day and takes in all the scenery and the atmosphere, only to return the following day to kick over and turn over the tables and remove the money changers and chase them out, scolding them through his teaching that they had turned God's house of prayer into nothing more than a den of thieves. And he could do this, of course, because he is the fulfillment of the temple. All that was taking place in the temple pointed to him. He is the true temple of God. Every sacrifice that had ever been offered there pointed to his ultimate one-time sacrifice of himself. The blood of the bulls and the goats, which can never suffice in taking away the sin of the people, were only a shadow of the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who was now there, and he was there to take away the sins of the world. And so he was rightfully disgusted in what he found when he entered the court of the Gentiles, the place that the temple where God had set up that even the Gentiles could come and worship in this area. But this place had been turned into a place of financial gain, worldly profit at the expense of those who was meant who it was meant to benefit. Sort of humanity at its worst, right? Hindering the worship of God in order to make money. We've never seen that happen, have we? And we refer to the scene as the cleansing of the temple. But I suggested that even though he did run the people out and cleansed it of its shenanigans, the reality is this was the cursing of the temple and the cursing of Jerusalem. As was just read to you from Mark and Jesus pretty much taking from Isaiah chapter 5. This was not only the ruling class of Jerusalem that was going down, but all of Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. And we know this further by the cursing of the fig tree that we looked at a few weeks ago, this symbolic act of demonstrating that God's choice people have become fruitless and no one would ever eat from her again. That's what he said. But... In the midst of all this, all hope was not lost as Jesus taught his disciples there because obviously they were concerned. They didn't realize when Jesus cursed this tree 
this fruit, this fig that often in the Old Testament represented Israel. I think they understood that he was saying something directly about the people of God in Israel and Jerusalem. And they were in despair, but Jesus taught them and said simply, have faith in God. All was under control and everything was perfectly going as planned. Now that was hard for them to see as it often is hard for us to understand and wrap our brains around the difficulties and tragedies of life that we're going through. But I assure you that God is still perfectly in control and everything's going as planned. But no doubt the Jewish leaders felt the weight of what Jesus was saying and doing in the temple. And so they were seeking a way to destroy him, Mark says. For they feared him. Because the people were astonished at his teaching. Now I think it's interesting to note, this is usually the way bully type leaders and false leaders, bad leaders, they act like they're real tough, but in reality they fear everything around them. They feared God, that God knew the truth. They feared people, they feared Jesus, they feared John the Baptist. Because they were astonished at his teaching. His teaching had substance unlike theirs. Right? And so our text today picks up at the next day as Jesus comes back into Jerusalem and back into the temple. And this time upon entering the temple, he's met by the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. This is the religious leader class of Jerusalem. Scribes, Pharisees, the chief priests. And they've been up all night conspiring now normally these people didn't get along very well but you know that old saying uh, war makes strange bedfellows suddenly all these guys were together they're going to destroy jesus and i can just see them thinking up this question we'll we'll start the questioning and rather than letting him teach we'll do the teaching as soon as he gets here we'll teach we'll ask him a question we'll belittle him in front of the people demonstrate that he has no right to be here he's unlike us he's not qualified and dignified, he has no business being here. So they hit him up right when he gets there with this question. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do this, right? They wanted to trip him up. They wanted to use his answer against him to prove that the people didn't need to be listening to him. He was a false prophet, a false authority. They weren't like, Jesus wasn't like them. They weren't, he wasn't trained and had the credentials to teach in the temple. But Jesus brilliantly beats them at their own game, right? And doesn't answer, but gives them a question. Well, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. You answer my question, and I'll answer yours. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me that. Now, to the casual observer, that may not seem like a very difficult question to answer, right? seems pretty innocent. But Mark helps by explaining to us, in case we don't understand, they discussed it with one another saying, wait a minute, if we say he's from heaven, John the Baptist, then he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? You had him, wanted him killed, and he was killed, and you rejoiced at it because you hated him. You hated his preaching, so they couldn't say from heaven, but then they said, but if we say from man, then... They, Mark says they were afraid of the people for 
the people knew that John was a prophet, right? One thing for certain was that first century Palestine where Jesus was at this time, the people accepted John the Baptist as a true prophet of God. And they listened to him. And so now we see Jesus has beat them at their own game. They think they're going to trip him up. They backed him into a corner. Finally, the people will hear that, he, that Jesus has no authority and they shouldn't be listening to him. Yet he volleys the ball back into their court with this question and exposes them as the real phonies. They're the ones who didn't believe God. They're the ones who haven't accepted his prophets. And so they come to him and say, we don't know. And then in a mic drop moment, Jesus says, well, then neither will I answer your question. You don't answer mine, I'm not going to answer yours. Just brilliant. But he doesn't stop there. Mark says he begins to speak to them in parables. Now, I remind you what a parable is. A parable is sort of a, a, a way of teaching, obviously, and Jesus did this often. But it's laying one thing beside another one. So a parable is a comparison. You don't look at the parables always and see specifics. They're not analogies. But they're side-by-side stories where you say, Hey, listen to this story, but see if you can't tell what I'm really talking about over here and who I'm talking about. Because there's a comparison to be made. He's already made these statements earlier, but he goes back this way with this parable. And I love what he does with this. He pulls it straight from Isaiah 5. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit, the wine press was put in it, built a tower, and that's almost word for word from Isaiah chapter 5. And he talks about these tenants, and apparently this was a pretty common thing in this day, where people of wealth and that could buy large farms, they would buy farms and then they would hire tenants to, to grow the fruit and the food in the farm, and they would make a profit off of that, but they would first send back all the they had made to the owner, obviously, but they got to keep some of the profit for themselves. So Jesus lays this story out. And obviously you can see the tenants of this farmer are much like the leaders in Jerusalem. Rather than doing what they had been put there to do, tend to the farm, grow the fruit, bring the surplus back to the owner, they just decided, we'll take it all. And so the owner sends back a servant. And obviously the comparison there, these servants that God had sent over the years all throughout Israel's history, the prophets. And often we know that they did get beaten. And some of them even did get killed. And he goes all the way down and says, but finally after all this, they beat one. They sent one back. The other one they killed. But he had one more, his beloved son. Finally, surely he thought to himself, they'll respect my son. But then the greed and the self-righteousness of the tenants came to the surface and they said wait a minute if we kill the son then it all belong to us we can have it all and they took him and killed him and here's probably the worst part of what these tenants did they didn't even have enough respect to bury him or send him back to the owner they threw him almost literally you can say they threw him over the fence of the vineyard threw him out and just let his body rot and of course, obviously, a picture of Jesus who 
suffered outside the gate. Remember, he's the son. He suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem. And so what will the owner do now? Well, he won't just hide away and shrink back in fear and say, well, I guess I lost that farm. No, he'll destroy the tenants and he'll give the vineyard to somebody else. In fact, have you not read, Jesus said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the corner. The one that had been cast out at one time becomes the the cornerstone that everybody sees when they walk up to the building to begin with. This was the Lord's doing, and it was a marvelous in our eye. It is marvelous in our eyes. So obviously we have the benefit of having the Old and the New Testament, and we're able to see these things come together. But I hope you can understand the point here Jesus is making. He's laying it out so certainly they can understand it. That, hey, just like the tenants in this story, the leadership in Israel has failed not only to tend the farm, but to produce fruit that would benefit or bring honor to the owner. Because God had sent these people, God had placed Israel in a special place of prominence to teach. They had the law, they had the prophets. And yet, obviously, what Jesus is saying, God's going to take that from you and he's going to give it to somebody else. And he does. He gives it to the Gentiles, right? And praise God, he did. Again, God's plan just coming to fruition. This is not not something Jesus just thought up. This is what's been going on since, well, we could say before the beginning of time. This plan of, this covenant of redemption that God made before the foundation of the world, it's coming to pass. And it's interesting, if you look back and think back, Matthew talks about parables and Jesus teaching in parables and why he did it. And he said to the disciples, because they asked him, Lord, why do you speak in parables? And he said, to give, for to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And he quotes Isaiah again, For indeed, you will hear, but not understand, see, but not perceive, because their hearts have grown dull. But he finally finishes up saying, But blessed are your eyes, for you see, and your ears, for you hear. So I want you to understand that he is still teaching here for our benefit, for the disciples' benefit, the spiritual aspect of this. I find it interesting that the spiritual leaders, so-called spiritual leaders of Jerusalem, understood what he was saying, but they didn't grasp the spiritual side of it because they had no eyes to see that. If so, they would have repented, right? They would have recognized, wait a minute, he's saying that we're about to be taken out of the picture and somebody else is going to come along. Now, they were smart enough, as Mark says, they perceived he was talking about us. It says they were seeking to arrest him now, but again, they were fearful of the people. But they had perceived that Jesus told this parable against them. They understood that he was talking about them, but they didn't see the spiritual aspect of it. Why? Because they were not blessed to see. They were not blessed to hear. It's a wonderful part of Mark's gospel. But what do we take away from this? Well, I've kind of already said it, but I'll say it again. First, Blessed are you if you can hear and see. And I say this often. But if you can hear these words, God sent his only son. Just like in this parable. The world hated him. 
He lived a sinless, perfect life. He never broke the law of God, perfectly kept the law of God, yet the world hated him so much that evil, wicked men did what their hearts desired, serving as the puppets of God himself and crucified Jesus, the Lord of glory. But he didn't die in vain. He died in perfect obedience to the Father's commands and the Father's will. And he died so that sinners, you and I, and anybody who's a sinner, which is everybody, if they see Jesus as the hope of their salvation and the Lord of glory and the one who died for their sin, and then if they believe in him, they will be saved. If you hear that and you say, yes, I believe Jesus died for me, then blessed are you if you can hear and see. Because many, many people hear that and they never believe. They hear that and they think that's a fairy tale. That couldn't happen. Some man couldn't die in the Middle East 2,000 years ago and that affect me. But if you understand that at all and you hear that and say, wow, that man on the cross died for me. My sin has been covered. His blood was shed that I might receive forgiveness and remission. Then blessed are you because you hear and see. How sad that so many physically heard Jesus speak but couldn't hear him. So blessed are you if you've been given ears to hear this message. Blessed are you if you can see that Jesus is your Savior. And if you see that for the first time, let somebody know. We'd love to encourage you in your faith, in your walk, in what's next, in repentance and following Him in baptism. Because God sent His Son that all who believe in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's what the Bible tells us. Secondly, this. And again, I'm repeating myself, but God's plan has been and still is perfectly being carried out. And it always will. To the very nth degree, to the very end. Much of what Jesus says here is reminiscent of what Paul teaches in Romans chapters 9 and 11. In fact, he says there in, in chapter 9, What shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Mount Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I mean, all this is God's plan. Jerusalem becoming what they have become. Now, they willfully did it. Their sinful hearts brought them to where they were, but it's part of God's plan. To take from Israel, give to the Gentiles, so that all might be saved. But, Paul goes on in Romans 11, but did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So God didn't cast them away and is not going to save any more Jews. He certainly will. And there's going to be a, a vast number of God's people, Israel, Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. It's already happening and it will continue to happen. It's a blessed thing. 
And so we're thankful that God chose a people. And through that people, he brought the law and the prophets. And eventually he brought the Messiah. But those people demonstrated faithlessness and lawlessness. And they didn't see their Messiah. But even that was part of the plan. That the Gentiles were brought in. Grafted in. That's us. But even still, that doesn't mean the Jewish people won't hear the gospel. Many will hear it and be saved. What a wonderful picture of the history of God and his dealings with his people in this simple parable. We're going to go through and there's going to be other points of teaching, parables, that we're going to continue to see this played out and taught in different ways from different angles until finally Jesus is surrendered to the authorities and he goes to the cross. And he's what many see as tragically crucified, but he's really gloriously crucified and buried and resurrected. And all of us hope in that. Amen. What a wonderful Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all of your blessings and we thank you for the blessing of your word. To be able to meet with your people, to sing together, to be able to celebrate salvation of our Lord salvation is of the Lord it's completely his it's completely yours and we recognize that and Lord we're so thankful that we are blessed to hear the words and to understand we look around and see so many that don't hear don't understand and we're saddened by that we don't boast that we've heard but we're burdened that others might hear and so we preach the gospel knowing that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Thank you for our Savior, for his perfect life and sinless life. And thank you that the hope we have is in him. And we celebrate that now and expect to receive even more grace from you this very moment as we celebrate the supper and we partake of that which we've been commanded to partake of and we celebrate the body of Jesus that was broken for us, the blood that was shed until he comes again. We celebrate it together. And Lord, we do thank you for this day and what we're celebrating with moms. What a blessing they are. Thank you for all those in our lives that have helped shape us to who we are. And we praise you for all your goodness to us in Jesus' name. Amen.